Good morning, everyone. My name is Ricky Ragone. If you don't know, I am the music and arts and youth pastor here. Um, I have to make sure I have my act together this morning as I got one shot. This is the first time in a while. It's just one time. Um, so yeah, this is going to be good. We are in 2 Samuel this morning, chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, get turn there or your app or whatever. If you need a Bible, we got some in the back on the uh, left side of the sound booth against the back wall. I encourage you to grab one. You will need it. There is a lot in this text. Uh, it's, it's a fun passage. Um, there's a lot to go over for sure. So before we get there, let's just get brought up to speed uh, on where we've been. Because last week, we finally saw, really, after a whole lot of death the past few weeks, we, Abishai, gone. Abner, whacked. Ishbosheth, killed in bed. The guys who killed Ishbosheth, also dead. After all that, now we have David, anointed king over all of Israel. All 12 tribes. And his first move, as we saw, was to, to, to move that capital city, that central city, to Jerusalem. To take it from the Jebusites who had been there and take it back for Israel. The Jebusites, they must not have known David's reputation because when he came, they mocked him as though he's nothing. And then like Super Mario, he jumps into a pipe, comes up on the other side and takes him out. And it says that David became greater and greater and greater because the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. He became greater not on his actions, not on his merit, but the presence of God with him. God was using David for the sake of his name and the sake of his glory. So David's gaining power. He gained a beautiful, crafted home. His celebrity status was growing. As we learn from Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility, which David does a pretty good job with, except with the ladies. Jay Leno, he's a car guy. David, he's a ladies guy. He liked women a lot. We're told at the end of this, he inquire, acquires more concubines, more wives. And if you've read ahead, that will lead to his downfall at least in a momentary piece of his life. And last week we concluded with the Philistines, the enemy of Israel, being pushed out, pushed back to where they belong. Out of Israel territory, back to their own region. Not because of David's skills, but because God was leading David, directing David. God was directing the battle. David was being obedient but what we see missing from the picture in all of this, this is all good. Israel's united. They got Jerusalem. David's the king. But what's missing is a significant piece. And it's the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of God. And that's where we pick up our story this morning. It was a central piece of their worship. It was the central piece of their culture. It's the central piece of this passage. Because of what it represented. God's presence among his people. It had everything to do, this passage has everything to do with the rule of God and the holiness of God and the worship of God. 
It's all about his glory, and we see it as we watch this ark travel back to Jerusalem. There's a lot in this chapter, as I've already said, uh, so we'll break it down into four sections. Relocating the ark of God, revering a holy God, rejoicing in the presence of God, and on a high note, we'll end reviled at home. So we'll pick it up in verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. So this passage begins with, with David's assembly of the chosen men of Israel. He's getting these 30,000 people for the purpose of retrieving the ark of God from Baal Judah and bringing it back to Jerusalem. Now this text describes what they're doing, but what it doesn't fully explain is why they are doing it. But thankfully we have the book of Chronicles. And 1 Chronicles chapter 13 and chapters 15 and 16 are, are parallel passages to this. So they provide more and more insight to this text than we get from just 2 Samuel 6. And in 1 Chronicles 13, it says, David consulted with the commanders of the thousands and of hundreds with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and the Levites in the cities that have pasture lands, that they be gathered to us. Let us bring the ark of God to us, and here's why they need to. For we did not seek it in the days of Saul. And all the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of the people. There was a major issue that needed to be righted for Israel. The ark of God had been completely neglected under the reign of Saul. Another indicator that he was not at all worried about the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of Saul. It sat in storage for 20 years. So David recognized that error and believed the only right course of action to bring it back to this city. The capital city where the king dwells should be where the ark of, the, of God dwells. For the Lord is the true king of Israel. It should come back. So he gathers the chosen men. It says 30,000. In First Chronicles it said he assembled all of Israel from the, the Nile of Egypt down here in the southwest all the way up to Lebo Hamath, which is up here. Basically saying as many people from the northeast to the southwest, as many as he gathered he could bring. About 30,000. That should tell us something. That should tell us that this is a significant thing. It had tremendous value. Now surely it didn't take 30,000 people to move the ark. That would be outrageous. But it's an event worth having this multitude of people for, having a parade for. And it was getting the royal treatment because it was a huge deal. Why? Well, if you need a reminder of what the ark is, here's a picture. You probably saw it earlier in the series. The ark was more than a, a three and three quarter by two and a quarter, two and a quarter foot box. It's more than a gold plated box. The ark was the very representation 
of God's presence among his people. Now, clearly, this box is not God himself because we see God active throughout many, 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 many years while this ark is seemingly forgotten. But this ark was to serve as a reminder to Israel that they were God's people. Yahweh was their God. It was no mere trophy or a centerpiece. It was the, the mark of, of his covenant to his people. It contained the, the tablets of the, the Ten Commandments, his word to them. It represented that relationship. The ark was, was central to their, their worship in the tabernacle. It was in the, the deepest part of the Holy of Holies where only the priest could access. It was the visible representation of God's presence among God's people. It told of his rule over Israel. Verse 2b, it says, The ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. The Lord is enthroned in heaven. The ark was his footstool. He reigns above everything. The ark can teach all that just from a gold box. The ark is really important. And if you remember back to 1 Samuel chapters 5-7, through 7, the ark was, was captured by the Philistines and they took it. And while they had it, it was brought them nothing but affliction and cursing. So they, they send it back via a cart to Israel. And the men of kereth Jerim took the ark and brought it to the house of Abinadab, where it remained for 20 years. Just sitting in a storage unit. Such a significant item just kept off to the side. Like if we were just to forget the cross. We can worship. We don't need to, we don't need, we don't need to see a cross. We don't need to focus on the cross. We'll just do our own thing. Just kept off to the side, out of sight, out of mind. But not any longer. They travel down to Kareth Jerim, or as it's called here, Baal Judah, same place, different way of referring to it. They travel there to transport the ark. And this is where the story kind of takes the disastrous turn for us. We'll expand on this through the rest of this point and into the next point. It says in verses 3 and 4 And they carried the ark of God on a new cart. And brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio and the sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. David knew how important this ark was. It's obvious. From the number of people he gathered for it. And somehow in all this excitement, they forgot a very important detail. That the God whom the ark was built to represent the God who dictated exactly how it was to be built, also dictated how it was supposed to be carried and transported from place to place. So if you remember from this, I'll bring up the picture again. There's rings on the side of the ark. Those rings are meant for specific poles. Those poles go through the ring. The Levites carry it on their shoulders. That's how it was to be carried. And they've placed it on a cart. Remember who else placed the ark on a cart? The Philistines. The enemy of Israel. 
Now Israel is transporting the very representation of God's presence the same way, on a cart. They aren't treating the ark of God the way it should be treated. They're transporting it in the same way that the pagans did, which leads to dire consequences. Revering a holy God. Verse 5, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. We need some castanets up in here. That's what we need. (laughs) Everything seems pretty good. The ark is moving. They're celebrating before the Lord, worshiping, rejoicing. They're singing songs of praise. They're having a ball. Seems awesome. But then this mode of transportation catches up for them. They hit a bumpy patch of road. Verse 6. And they came to the threshing floor of Nikon. Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God, took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died beside the ark of God. Took a weird turn from things, didn't it? Seems a little extreme. He just wanted to save the ark. They hit a bump. It was going to fall. He's just trying to catch it. Dead. The oxen stumbled. He just didn't want it to touch the ground. Does the, does the punishment fit the crime? Let's see what God has to say on the matter. Numbers 4.15 God is giving the instruction to the Kohathite priests, the specific Levites who were carrying the ark. Their duty was to transport the, the ark and the other holy items of the tabernacle, lampstand, uh, altars. Here's what he has to say. Numbers 4.15. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out, after the sons of Kohath, shall come to carry these. But... They must not touch the holy things, lest they die. These are the things of the tent of the meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. And then in Numbers 7, 9, Moses distributing wagons to different Levites. Look what it says. But none of Kohath, or to the sons of Kohath, he gave none. Why did he give them no wagons? Because they were charged with the service of the holy things that had to be carried on the shoulder. This is God's law to his people. This is his word to his people. They give a clear picture to how the ark should be transported. It should be transported on their shoulders by specific people using specific poles and specific rings, done a specific way, and untouched in the process. And the punishment for touching the ark was death. He made it clear. He, re- he revealed that to the people. So was God just in striking Uzzah dead on the spot? Yes. Specific instructions with specific consequences. And disobedience to that instruction was sin. Still is sin. And the punishment for sin is death. Some may take issue with such swift justice by God. Might that be because we want to fit God into what, what our mold of what we think God should be and, and how we think God should act. And when he, he, when he doesn't act that way, we think, well, that's, that's not just. 
It's not what I would call just. That's not what I would call good. We have our presuppositions about what a just and good God looks like, and when God doesn't exactly look that way, we get, we get angry. David gets angry. Verse 8. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. You know, David was really, really glad when, when God struck down his enemies for the rebellion against him. But what happens to the home team when I was angry with God? But God's just, justice, his holiness, it doesn't fluctuate. He's steady. He's constant. He's unchanging. David gets angry. That's not a God issue. That's a David issue. That's an us issue. That's a pride issue. We want God and expect the God, we want to be God, and we expect the God of the universe to be subordinate to us. And that just simply is not how it is. God acts according to his will, by the standard of his holiness. It's not our job to presume what is right and wrong when it comes to God. So you may look at Uzzah touching the ark and think, it's such a small thing. Sure, it was disobedient, but he didn't kill anyone. He wasn't trying to steal the ark. He simply tried to save the ark from touching the dirty ground, as though our hands are much cleaner than the ground. I believe it's Pastor J.D. Greer said, the ground never sinned against God. We did. Does such a small act deserve such severe consequences? Don't forget, all of mankind was condemned and bondage to sin because of the disobedience of Adam. His disobedience wasn't that he killed Eve. It's that they ate of the fruit that they were banned from having. They disobeyed. Eating a piece of fruit in our minds probably seems like a very small thing. But it's not the fruit. It's the disobedience to what God had said. That's the sin. And the wage of sin is death. Small disobedience is disobedience. Sometimes that's a tough pill to swallow. It says in the ESV here that that Uzzah was struck down because of his error, which is an exactly correct way of translating the word there. But the NASB and the NIV, they translate the word as irreverent. He He was struck down for his irreverence. And I think what they're doing is they're taking the word, the error, and also including probably the, the heart intent in that translation. The heart motive behind the error, which I, I think is spot on. His error is, is rooted in maybe not a outright, I'm going to rebel against God and try to save the ark. That's not what it is. But it's an irreverence to God and God's law. He wasn't the only one. Like, we're not standing here today going, everyone else was fine, and then you have this guy, Uzzah, what a jerk, catching the ark. He wasn't the only one who was irreverent. Anyone who, who was a part of putting the ark on a cart and saying, you know what, I'll have the oxen do it. They would all be considered irreverent. They wanted to bring the representation of God's presence back to Jerusalem, but they wanted to do it on their terms. And honestly, we can't sit here today and act like we do things that much differently. We just don't have an ark and we don't have a cart. 
We may not be touching the Ark of the Covenant, but we sin against Him regularly. We want the presence of God. We don't spend any time in His Word. Certainly don't spend any time in prayer. Put God in second place. I'm not saying all the time, but you know what I mean. We want the presence of God, but we, 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 we want it when it's convenient for us. Oh, I was going to... I was going to join the family in worship this morning, but there was this, this sporting event that just came up, this social gathering that came up. Not that any of those things are, are bad things, but when we make them the ultimate thing, they're idols. We make, we make time for God when it's convenient for us, when it, when it makes it easier for us, like a cart in the ark, that was certainly easier than carrying that heavy thing. And God should just appreciate the little consideration we give him. No. No. We may not say it outright. It may not be the intention of our heart that we recognize, but it, deep down, like that's what it is. Other things seem more important. We want to go the easy way. We're no better than Uzzah, but thankfully, and I, I keep using the word we because I'm included in this. And this week as I'm typing this sermon out, I'm like chastising myself as I'm writing it. Just so you know, it's not just me poking a dagger at you. I had to destroy myself first. We're no better than Uzzah, but thankfully we have a Savior who is. Amen? That's our only hope. It's our only peace. It's the gospel. We need to be a people who are constantly looking to the cross. The cross is what, what bridges God's holiness and our sinfulness. I have a, a chart here from a great little book called The Gospel-Centered Life by Robert Thune and Will Walker. And what this chart shows is that the more we grow in the gospel, that's the enlarging cross there, the more we grow in the gospel, the more aware of God's holiness we are and our own sinfulness. And they write in this book, growing in the gospel means seeing more of God's holiness and more of my sin. And because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, we need not fear seeing God as he really is or admitting how broken we really are. We need not fear those things. Because our only hope, our hope is not in our own goodness nor in the vain expectation that God will compromise his standards and grade on a curve. Rather, we rest in Jesus as our perfect redeemer, the one who is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. The gospel keeps us in check. We don't have to expect God's holiness to change. And we don't have to, to deceive ourselves in thinking that we are not sinful. God is a holy God. We are a sinful people redeemed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. He should be revered. We shouldn't be so comfortable that we, we forget that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. David got angry, but then it moves from anger to, to, to fear. In verse 9, And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. 
David rightfully feared the Lord. David now feels the weightiness of God. And he asks a very necessary question. How can the ark of the Lord come to me? He recognizes his sinfulness before a holy God. He's he's fearful of suffering the same fate as Uzzah. Almost like immediately he realizes like, oh, if that happened to him, I surely, I am unworthy of this thing. It's like the weight of all that was happening hit him. So he takes the detour. Maybe the ark shouldn't come into the city. So he drops it with Obed-Edom to get tight. Who is Obed-Edom the Gittite? (laughs) There are a few different theories with this guy. I was very surprised. One from him being a Philistine, because Gittite means from from Gath. Gath was a Philistine city. Uh, There's another commentator who said he was a custodian of sorts. But then there's the other commentators that I tend to to agree with, that this Obed-Edom person is a Levitical gatekeeper. He's referenced throughout Chronicles, um, even First Chronicles 15, which parallels right with this story. He's listed in the Levitical gatekeeper, uh, with the Levitical gatekeepers. And this Gittite word is what throws everyone for a loop. Like, what does that mean? Be- even though it means from Gath, there was a, a Levitical city called Gath-Ramon that he very well could have been from. It was a Levitical city, so if he's a Levitical gatekeeper from a Levitical city named Gath-Ramon, well, it seems pretty fitting that he might be called Obed-Edom the Gittite. For me, that's what makes the most sense. He's given the responsibility of of watching the ark. It wouldn't surprise me if (laughs) seeing what the ark did, they're like, we'll give it to this Philistine guy. Just in case. (laughs) But it seems more likely that they give it to someone who's going to respond and, and, and understand this is what you're, you're, you're keeping over here. So it says he has the ark there for three months. And in that time, he experiences something from the ark that we haven't seen very much. Blessing. We haven't seen it lately. Wherever the ark goes, there seems to be some cursing and some, some vermin and some death. But now blessing has come. And David gets wind of it. In verse 12 here, he decides it's time for the ark to to, to finally come back to Jerusalem. And it was told to King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all the things that belong to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. David had three long months to think about what happened on that road that day. Probably mixed emotions of anger, of fear, guilt. Why would I transport it that way? What was I doing? We may forget about it on the ride home, but he had three months to think about this person who died in front of his eyes. And one thing is for sure that when he goes down to the house of Obed-Edom, David learned how to treat and transport the ark. First Chronicles 15.2. Again, it's a parallel passage. It says, Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, 
For the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring back the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. Bingo. David spent some time meditating, obviously, on the law of God. Learning, or at least no longer ignoring, what God had spoken with regards to his ark. And he was prepared to transport it properly, with reverence, not just with ease. He's responding in obedience. He saw God's justice poured out, and in that punishment of sin, God revealed his holy and gracious character, and that brings forth David's obedience, responding. And I say gracious character in that because he didn't just strike everyone dead. 30,000 dead bodies laying there. They were spared. That's what the gospel should be as a motivation for us. There's a punishment for sin, but it's on Christ and not his sin, but ours. And in that punishment, God's revealed holy and gracious character is on display for us. And as we grow in the gospel and, and gratitude of being spared the just punishment for our own sin, we should respond in grateful obedience. For a God who loves us and cares for us, that he would give his son, that we may be able to be free and redeemed from the effects of sin. David is responding in grateful obedience. Now we can come down on David all day long for doing it the wrong way the first time. But we have to give him credit here. He didn't try the same thing twice. He sinned. Obviously, there's some repentance there and so at least some, some correcting of what happened. And now, he's going about it the right way as God ordained. How many of us are guilty of that? Oh, I did this really wrong. Thank you, Lord. And we turn. That's how it should be. We're not called to be perfect. I don't think it's ever going to happen. I mean, technically, we are called to be perfect, but we just know we won't be. And by the grace of God, we get a seemingly infinite number of chances because of Christ. He not only, going back to David, he not only transports the ark, now they're doing it with rejoicing. How can they do it with rejoicing? Didn't they see what the ark just did three months ago? Wouldn't they be like worried the same thing is going to happen? They're going to be walking on eggshells? No. Why? Because there's freedom in obedience. Many think calling someone to obey is, is binding and confining. But freedom is walking in accordance to God's law, in accordance to God's ways. The bondage is really in sin. David, David and Israel could rejoice because they, they, they knew what they were doing was, was in step with what God has called them to do. There's, there's freedom in that. And I love this scene. They hoist the ark up onto the shoulders of the Levites. They're, they're ready to make the trek up to Jerusalem. Then they take six steps and they stop. A sacrifice of an ox and a fattened animal is made. It consecrates this procession. Do you see how things are changing? It's no longer, all right, toss this thing up on the cart, smack the ox, get them going. We're going to party. They'll do the work. No, they're they're, they're pausing. They're taking a pause. We're going to make sacrifice. They're, they're acknowledging more than the box. More than the ark. 
the presence of God. And David is moved to passionate worship. Verse 14, And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. Here we see David doing two things that are seemingly unheard of for anyone in his position. The first thing, probably most obvious, he was dancing. It wasn't an uncommon practice in general. We see it as a mode of rejoicing throughout the scriptures, but when I went back and looked, oftentimes when we see people dancing, it was, it was the women coming out and dancing. In Exodus and Judges, earlier in 1 Samuel, we don't, we don't see it as much with the men. We certainly don't see it with King Saul. But David doesn't hold back his joy for God's presence. He dances before the Lord. And the second thing we see is he's wearing a linen ephod. Now we don't think, well, what's the big deal with that? It wasn't a kingly garment. It was a priestly garment. So him dancing and wearing that, it was very outside the norm. But that's what he's doing. I just want to take a second to kind of explore this, just this little area of, of, of external expressions of worship for a second. Particularly dancing. Right? We, we gather together for the corporate worship of God. We're, we're doing it now. And this passage has been used by so many to either, one, to try to put a stop to dancing. No more dancing. Or, or give, use this passage to give license to just letting loose with reckless abandon. It's funny that one passage could be used for two very opposing things. But I think what we see in that is it's safe to say that going too far in either direction is probably wrong. We, we are a church that certainly encourages the external expressions of worship. Raised hands, clapping, joyful music. There's even a little movement. Now we're not talking, we're not talking Elvis on the Ed Sullivan show, so we gotta feel, you know, waist up and all, but we got some stoics here too, that's fine. That's good. But we're not getting chaotic with it, right? The expressions of worship, they're not out of control. We're not running laps around the place with our banners. We're not flopping on the floor like fish out of water. Right? There needs to be an order to worship. 1 Corinthians 14. Our God is not a God of chaos, but one of order. We are to express our joy and our celebration before God within order. Each church has a culture. We may not, on the regular, have dance routines happening on Sunday mornings, but we have, we've seen them at the women's brunch. We had kids doing singing and dancing during our Easter celebration. During VBS, we welcome it. Expression is good. Dancing is good. And also, sometimes worship doesn't always look like this overjoyed excitement. We see it throughout Psalms, and we saw it in first, and we'll see it more in Second Samuel. An external form of worship is visible brokenness. Sometimes a necessary expression of worship is quiet reflection, a bowed head, maybe tears in the eyes, whatever. 
But expression, it's not an add-on. It's not just something like we, we try to get in there. It's, it's an overflow of what God is doing, how we're responding to his revelation. Sometimes with rejoicing, sometimes with reflection. Pastor J.D. Greer says, what we never need is to pretend that what we do with our tongues and our bodies is irrelevant. Worship starts as an attitude of the heart, but it never stays there. We're going to overflow. It's very unhealthy to just show no emotion when it's hopefully erupting inside. The bottom line is that as God reveals himself and his spirit is at work within us, we're going to be moved to worship, whether that's in song, in service, whatever it is, loving people. What we need to be weary and careful of is the extremes. We can't have a footloose-style dancing band, and we can't have self-centered chaotic theatrics. That's also wrong and out of place. Our worship should always bring more honor and glory to the Lord than ourselves. That's what it's about. That's what David is doing. He's dancing before the Lord, unlike any leader had done before. He's dressed unlike any king we've seen. He's doing these things not for the purpose of his glory. That would really work the opposite. But he's doing it for God's glory. He's parading down the streets of Jerusalem, bringing the, the, the ark that was the visible representation of God's presence that's in the city. The ark is here. It was an exciting time. It's being placed where David had prepared, in the place David prepared for it, and he's excited. The people are excited. They're rejoicing. Food's being distributed to men, to women. Everyone returned home overjoyed that they were not struck dead that day. The ark came in and nobody, no lives were lost. Praise the Lord. The ark is in the city. Things are good. David returns home and the excitement gets sucked out of the air. (laughs) Reviled at home. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window, saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. She despised him in her heart. Moving down to verse 20. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Wow. Nice to see you, dear. (laughs) Maybe I'll see what one of my other 50 wives has to say. (laughs) But what did Michael just say? Did she basically just call David a flasher or what? I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's the case. Many have interpreted this passage to say David danced naked before the Lord, unashamed in God's presence. Everything's right with that except the naked part. I don't believe that's what happened. I mean, that's certainly the expression she used, but it's a major exaggeration. She was upset. She did not like how David was handling herself, him himself. Her father would never have done that. 
Saul would never have done that. He was a dignified king. Notice how it refers to her here. Michael, the daughter of Saul. Not Michael, David's wife. She believes a king should not be dancing. It should certainly not be wearing a linen ephod. Especially in front of the servants' female sermon, servants. Women were not held in the, the highest of regard back then. So for her to worry about what the, the servants' female servants thought, she's essentially communicating that he, what he's doing is just so undignified that even, even those servants of the servants who are women are, are, are looking down on you. You're exposing yourself to even them. You acted so foolishly today, David, that you, you came across as a vulgar man who would disrobe himself. But what, what she's saying happened and what the narrator describes to us are two very different things. I think there's a warped perspective there. Michael is holding on to her father's legacy, how he would have acted. She, she's a surviving piece of that old kingdom, a kingdom marked by a king ruling of his own accord, trying to do his own thing, boost his own name. David, though flawed, is leading a new kingdom, one where the king acts in accordance with God's rule. A king that sometimes will look more like a priest than a king. David leads his people into more than just battle. He's leading them into worship and praise. She had one expectation. David was doing something so different that all she can think of is the, what he's doing right now, unclothing himself like that. It's not right. So then David gives a pointed and somewhat stern rebuttal to her accusations. Verse 21, And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. David makes his case. It was not before the servants, female servants, that I, I dressed like this and danced like this. It's before the Lord. The people aren't who chose me. The Lord chose me. Above your father, mind you. That's kind of like the, ooh, the dig. He appointed me prince or, or ruler over all of Israel. It wasn't I who chose to take the throne. It was God who chose me and appointed me. He did it over Saul, who, by the way, I tried to serve and always honored. He did so over Jonathan, who was one of my best friends. The Lord chose me for this position, and I will, he says, I will celebrate before him. And then he says, I'll make myself even more contemptible than this. I'll be abased in your eyes. In other words, what I did today may have been humbling, but you ain't seen nothing yet. 
I'll lower myself more than this should it mean that the Lord would receive glory. And my humility before the Lord, it's not going to make these female servants ashamed of me, ashamed of their king, for they will hold me in honor, for I am honoring the Lord. Which, which interesting, if you have a, an ESV, when he talks about uh, the, the phrase obeys before your eyes, that's how it's translated. But there's a footnote there. It says that what they're, they're using for the, the translation here is the Septuagint. So it says that David says that I make myself more contemptible to this and I will be abased in your eyes. But in the Hebrew, it would read like this. I will make myself more contemptible than this and I will be abased in my eyes. Well, that seems like two different statements. And as I was thinking this through, I'm like, why would they use, why would, why would they use the Septuagint for this? Why would they go with your over my? I'm not the brightest, so I, I don't seem to think to be a, a translator of any kind, but I was thinking it through, and I was like, think about the situation. If David doesn't act like a king, and bases himself in his eyes, that will end up only causing Michael to look down on his actions more and more, therefore, basing himself in her eyes. So we end up at the same place. David is willing to humble himself before the Lord, where he's not about what others think, and Michael resents him for it. Don't get me wrong, I don't think that's the only thing Michael resents David for. Could be the multitude of wives and concubines he has. But that's not what she's calling him out for here. She's calling him out because of the way he acted, his, his worship. David, David is saying, a king who is willing to lay down perceived dignity for the sake of glorifying and honor the Lord will be held in honor. And that's how it should be. And there, the narrator makes a point here. This last, this last verse of the chapter. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. You can put two and two together, right? Michael and David may have lived in the same house. She may have been his wife, but there was no longer a loving relationship there. There was no intimacy there. No remnant of Saul would be in the lineage of David. Not exactly the fairy tale ending that we had hoped for back in 1 Samuel 18 when it says, And Michael loved David. That could have been a curse upon Michael. It could have, she could have been barren. We don't know. We just know she has no children the rest of her days. But even though this chapter kind of ends on a, a little bit of a sour note, I don't want to end there. This chapter, though, bookended with sadness. First, the, the irreverent moving of the ark and, and Uzzah's subsequent death. And then this tragic domestic dispute. In the middle is this beautiful picture of rejoicing. The ark of God had returned to the central city of Israel. It was placed in high esteem where it should have been. But it hadn't been for 20 years. 
And David provides this beautiful picture of what it means to lower oneself to the glory of God. But we all know David is not the most perfect picture of that. We see this most perfectly embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. Our perfect, humble king of kings. See, Michael believed that that David, if he's king, he should act a certain way. He should look a certain way. And when he doesn't, he's rejected by Michael. When Jesus came, the people expected a Messiah, the king, that would look and act a certain way. He'd be a mighty warrior. He wouldn't be a prince of peace. And when he didn't look that way, he faced the ultimate rejection. David was despised and rejected by Michael. Jesus was a man of sorrows, despised and rejected by men. Isaiah 53 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. David willingly humbled himself for the sake of God's glory. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2, 5-11. Paul telling them, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So I believe the crux of this passage is the holiness and glory of God. And the response to a holy God should be obedient and humble worship. We have the perfect example of that in Christ, who lowered himself from his throne in heaven to die on a cross for our sin, for our rebellion, for our disobedience. He was obedient to the point of death, and in his humility and his desire To glorify the Father, he was lifted up and exalted. Defeating death, conquering sin, he rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And at his name, every knee should bow, every tongue that should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. That's what it's all about. Hallelujah, what a Savior. What is your response to such a glorious Savior this morning? Are we willing to repent of our our pride and and, and striving to be our own God and go our own way? Or will we we respond in, in grateful obedience to Jesus Christ, experiencing the freedom and of knowing that we are in Christ and because of Christ we have his righteousness? We have, his, we have his perfection. Not in our 
day-to-day actions. We still battle the flesh. We still battle sin. But we, when God looks upon us, when we've put our faith in Christ, he sees his son's righteousness. He sees the work of the cross and the resurrection. Are we trusting in his finished work, rejoicing in the love that we see from God and in his grace? Are we rejoicing in salvation by grace through faith? May all that we do be to declare and demonstrate the goodness of God for his glory and his glory alone. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would let us be a people that seeks your glory above all else. That what we do be focused on the cross and the empty grave. May we see your, your, your holiness, our sinfulness, and be moved to repentance and thanksgiving that Christ has mended the relationship that was broken by sin. May the love we experience in the gospel motivate us to live reverently and obediently in freedom in walking with you, not in the bondage of, of sin and rebellion to you. No longer needing to look over our shoulder, for we know that we are your children. You are our God and Father. And if you are for us, Lord, who could be against us? We are your church. You are our God. And Father, we may not have an ark, but we have the very presence, your very presence living within us by your Holy Spirit. This morning, let us respond to you in just grateful adoration, Lord, for all that you have done and all that you continue to do. And it's in the name of Jesus, our God and King, we pray. Amen.